Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. If you'd like to join the program, we invite you to join us in our chat room. You can go over to freenode.net and join Pound Ask Noah Show. We'll take your comments that way, your questions that way, or you can join us in our interactive mumble room. Tons of ways to join the show. If you're not able to join the show, then you're not trying hard enough because we make it really, really easy. So my first external hard drive that I ever purchased to store data was back when I was in middle school and I started saving everything. You know, prior to that time, uh, I had to be very selective of what things I wanted to download off of the internet because I, I didn't have enough space to store everything. And I remember, uh, and it wasn't very big. I think it was, you know, maybe 120 gig drive at the time. But to me, that was an unlimited amount of space. And I was super excited to start saving all of that stuff. In fact, I would argue it probably inspired my love and desire for local data. And so fast forward 20 some five some years later, uh, 99% of that stuff is not available on the internet. And if it is, I couldn't tell you where to find it. But what I do know is I know exactly where to find that data because I have it saved and I have continued to be saving that stuff ever since then. And every few years I go and swap my file server and so that started as, you know, just a regular Fedora box and has since been upgraded to FreeNAS. And so every few years, I just dump all the drives and put new drives in. And so I always just kind of assume that if I ever need the data, it's somewhere. Well, I've been on a mission the past few months to go and organize all of that data and get it put into one place. And of course, if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to take every piece of data I own and put it all into one box, then I want that one box to be very well backed up and very well distributed. And I want that data to exist in three or more places and be resistant to any sort of threat I can think of. And as you might imagine, my job at AltaSpeed Technologies has allowed me to see the worst of the worst of disasters, right? I've dealt with buildings that have started on fire. I've dealt with buildings that have had pipes burst and taken out servers and equipment. I've dealt with people vandalizing. I've dealt with people stealing. I've dealt with viruses, cryptoware. I mean, pretty much you name it. If there's a way for data to be destroyed and or become inaccessible, I've seen it. And it's made me super paranoid. And what, I, what I've landed on is that if data is on cold shelf storage uh, and in multiple places, that's pretty much the safest way to ensure nothing bad can happen to it. Of course, the problem with that is you can never get to the data when you need it. You have to go dig around for drives. So it's not a real great solution. Uh, and so there are other concerns that come into play. And so when we go into businesses and start recommending that they move all of their data off the cloud, we just did that this month. We took a business that had been using Microsoft um, Teams to store all of their data on OneDrive. And we said, hey, we think you should bring that back in-house. We think you should own your data. We think you should manage your data. And I, we think that you're going to have an increased productivity and workflow and all of those kinds of things. And of course, one of the things I asked is, 
how do we defend against fire, theft, water damage, intentional destruction? And today, I finally have an answer to that question. Previously, I had been telling customers and people, the answer is to back up. So back up to a backup location and then have a third backup location. And if it's a large business or if the data represents a significant portion of the revenue, I generally recommend that the business owner, him or herself, have a copy of that data on a server at their home, something that they have, they can put their hands on, something that they can watch over and say, yep, I know my business is safe. It gives me peace of mind. I assume it gives other businesses, business owners peace of mind. Well, the landscape is increasing because there is a company out there making a device called the IOSAFE, I-O-S-A-F-E. And the IOSAFE is an external drive enclosure, but this is not your daddy's grand regular hard drive disk enclosure. This is a 25-pound behemoth. Now, you might ask yourself, Noah, what does a drive enclosure have to be made out of to weigh 25 pounds? Well, that extra weight is what composes the fireproofing, the water resistance. Now, get this. This this drive is designed to protect your data for up to three days under 10 feet of fresh or salt water. Three days in 10 feet of water. So you can bury this thing in your basement and your entire basement can flood can flood. And as long as you can find a scuba diver team to go down there and dig the thing back up within 72 hours, they tell us that your data is going to be fine. Well, no, what happened if my house starts on fire that three days or 10 feet underwater isn't going to help. Well, guess what? They protect this thing to 1,550 degrees for up to 30 minutes. Now, in my case, I have a, as I'm sure many of you know, I have a very large uh, gun safe at my house. I'm an avid shooter and the, the gun safe itself is fire resistant. And so my thought is I'm going to take this thing, I'm going to put my drives in it, and I'm going to take the 1,550-degree infernal rated drive enclosure for 30 minutes, and I'm going to put that inside of my gun safe that's rated for even more fire protection. Uh, And so fires and floods happen. Another thing that happens, dry failures. What do you do in the event of a dry failure? So to protect against this, the IOSafe Duo contains two hard drives, And the drive makes two copies simultaneously and backs up to the other. Now, this is nothing particularly special. Most drive enclosures that are available today have some sort of function like this. But the thing that I really like about the IOSafe in particular is not only does it support RAID 1, that is copying onto two drives, and that's the default, but you can change it to RAID 0, JBOD, or spanning uh, using jumpers on the back of the unit. So what does that mean for you? That means if you are a Linux guru and you prefer to store your data in LVM, or if you're like me and prefer to store it on ZFS, this drive enclosure is going to work with for you because obviously with ZFS, you wouldn't want the drive to be dealing with RAID. You'd want it to present the individual disks to the operating system and let uh, let ZFS handle that. And this drive enclosure will work perfectly with that, and you can configure it just by switching some jumpers around on the back. And so uh, you're going to gain speed and capacity in RAID 1 if you choose to use that functionality, uh, and or uh, RAID 1 halves the capacity of the data and lowers the performance, and you lose in data security. So the IOSafe Duo uh, comes comes pre-built with up to two drives. You can do... It will support up to 14 terabyte drives in either bay. You can use 3.5 inch, 2.5 inch. It has a maximum capacity of 28 terabytes. And of course, that's reduced to 14 if you're using RAID 1 because the drives are mirrored. So you're only getting half the capacity, which is the recommended setup from the manufacturer. I don't know about you. 14 terabytes is not going to be enough for me, but they have this company offers a whole array of lineups. 
Uh, read speeds peaking out at 189 megabytes per second. Write speeds to 171 megabytes per second. The fire protection has been te- tested against ASTM E119 standards, and the wa- water resistant has been tested to IP68 standards. Which, if you're not familiar with IP68 or uh, ASTM E119, these are the kind of standards that you know Pelican cases and such are rated against. I don't believe a Pelican case is a fire rating, but uh, certainly has IP68 water rating. Now, the Bear Enclosure sells for $399, and to me, that's a really good deal. I think the last enclosure that I purchased that was somewhat similar to this, it was a four-bay enclosure, and it did not support rate. It just presents the discs uh, as, as, as JBOD discs, and I think I paid $200 for that enclosure. So this is not a bad deal. Considering what you're getting, not only are you getting the drive enclosure, but you are getting a, a safe that surrounds it. Now, the back of it contains a USB-C uh, interface and allows you to connect it to the to, to your computer via USB-C. Now, the, the, the one thing I couldn't find uh, in digging around, and again, this you can go back and listen to our previous episodes to get more information on this, but USB-C is kind of a tricky beast because... When they say USB-C, do they actually mean it's being presented over the USB interface or do they mean that it's a Thunderbolt interface or there's a whole bunch of different ways that USB-C can be exposed to the computer and it matters and here's why. If it's just a USB interface, there's you're going to take a hit on uh, on speed, but it's going to allow it to work on basically any computer because it really just is backwards compatible with USB just by the right cable. Uh, buy a Type-C to Type-A cable, and you'll be able to plug it into any old computer, and it's going to work. Now, if it's Thunderbolt interface, it is going to require a Thunderbolt card. And I get this question a lot at AltaSpeed. Interestingly enough, we've, it's never come up here on the air, but you cannot add Thunderbolt into a computer because the GPIO headers don't exist on the motherboard. And so there's no such thing as a PCI Thunderbolt add-on. Uh, there's no such thing. There's no way to add it if the manufacturer of the motherboard didn't intend for Type-C to be, and Thunderbolt specifically to be included um, at the get-go. But for $399, even if, it was just, uh, even if it was just USB, I think this is a fantastic enclosure. I ran, not walked, over to CDW and picked one up for myself. This is what I'm undoubtedly going to start using for keeping backups of my data as well as uh, we're going to we're our operations team over at AltaSpeed's working on putting together a solution to offer to customers so we can pair this uh, with like a free NAS box, a small little free NAS box that will speak S3 and 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 do data replication and backup uh, for customers. Really, really cool device. Really awesome. And uh, so check that out. You can go to podcast.asnoahshow.com. Head over there for the link uh, to this device. Again, it's called the IO Safe Duo. They also have an IO Safe uh, Solo, as well as, again, a whole array of NAS devices and such. You can find more about that on their site. Again, the phone lines are open. If you'd like to join us, 855 450 NOAH. It's 855 450 6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So, Friday, uh, we got the announcement that the CEO is stepping down of IBM. And uh, so this comes as an eight-year tenure as she oversaw the the company go through a a rather difficult transition into cloud computing. Uh, She's going to be replaced by Chief Executive uh, Arvid Krishana. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. IBM's Senior Vice President to the cloud. That same day, Jim Whitehurst will take over the CEO of IBM, Red Hat's subsidiary. Uh, And he's going to become the next president 
of IBM. So what does this mean exactly? I thought a little bit about this, and I, I talked to some folks at Red Hat and uh, just kind of poked around and said, you know, how, how are you guys feeling about this? What do you think? And what I was able to come up with is this is primarily a good thing, and here's why. The CEO is an externally facing position. He sets the strategy uh, for the company and sets the direction for the company and then interfaces with the, the you know the public and, and makes those announcements. Now, the problem with that position is that position oftentimes requires paying attention to what's going to sell well, what's going to sound good, what's going to be uh, a successful strategy, right? And you start you you don't have you don't have the flexibility and the luxury to start looking at things like how do we make the company more open? How do we make the company more freedom respecting? You can't really think about those things when your neck is pressed against the wall in a, in a board meeting and when you have to face the board and you have to explain to them the decisions that you're making and why those things are ultimately profitable for the company. Now, that's not to say that anybody else in any position of leadership you know, is just as a free for all to do whatever they want. Certainly, though, you have more flexibility to make some decisions when you're not the one that's going to be called in front of a press conference and you're not the one that has to explain these things. And so when when Jim Whitehurst was the, the CEO of Red Hat, you saw him say and do a lot of things uh, in the best interest of Red Hat. And if you read Jim's book, you start to see that the inside the man, this guy really gets open source. He really gets open. And he explains in his book how he he set out to, you know, he's a former CEO of Delta Airlines. So he thought he gets hired by this, you know, this redhead company. He's, I'm going to show him how to do a large major, you know, major national company. I've done this before. I can I have something to show them. And through that, what he learned was that actually the open way, the red hat way was a better way of doing things. And so he has been one of the most successful leaders of any open source company, certainly the most profitable open source company here in the United States. And now he is going to be put in a in in a, in, in the highest leadership position with the internally facing strategy because that's what he's going to be handling as the president. The president is going to handle all of the internal stuff. Now, what I like about that is Jim is the kind of leader who wants to promote open source. So oftentimes uh, he's going to be the one that is going to be having the decisions on who to bring on staff, who to staff the company with. And as we've talked about on the show numerous times, I've said it before and I'll say it again, if you want a company to go from proprietary to open, you fill a big powerful, wealthy, proprietary company with open people. And that is the way that you change a company from the inside out. And you, we've seen that be successful before. And if there is a guy for this job, it is Jim. Because Jim Whitehurst is a guy who has the experience to lead a multi-billion dollar company while staying true to open source. So overall, I, I you know, and I, I, I get it. I get that there are a lot of people that, that, that this acquisition makes nervous. I get that there are a lot of people um, that are a little concerned. But the truth is, there's a decent amount of people at Red Hat that really like Arvin. And I, I think the vast majority of people really have a lot of respect for Jim Whitehurst. And so uh, this seems you can't really take the CEO 
of a company that you bought and then bypass the second in command at IBM. It just wouldn't make any corporate sense. It doesn't make any structural sense. I mean, uh, this guy uh, who's Indian descent, which I think is pretty cool, has a a lot of uh, experience with with cloud and infrastructure. I mean, he was the cloud guy. This is what IBM is trying to do as a strategy. So I think this particular set of decisions makes a lot of sense. And it really, I think this is where you're starting to see the rubber hit the road with Red Hat, with IBM making decisions about Red Hat that don't say, hey, we're just going to, we just bought Red Hat because they were a successful company and we wanted to wrap them under our umbrella. No, I think this is really IBM making a strategy shift. So obviously time will tell how this actually plays out. I personally am extraordinarily happy about this. I think this is good for Linux. I think this is good for Red Hat. I think that this puts a lot of tools and power and direction behind a company that has been doing really, really good things for a very long time. And I think that when I was interviewing uh, Stephanie Churas and and actually all and Chris Wright and all those folks at Red Hat, I, was, I, I got home and I told my wife, I said, you know, the thing that really I got emotional about was as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid who was looking at all this enterprise technology that I, I couldn't afford, I didn't have, my parents weren't going to spend, you know, $1,000, $2,000 for a Windows server license. Man, we just we just purchased a, a Windows a 2019 server license for a client. It was $6,000 for their data center edition. I think they charge more if you start doing um, virtualization. $6,000, I'm you know, just crazy. And as a 9, 10-year-old kid, I got to play with this enterprise-level technology because Red Hat released it for free. And my son was setting up a Minecraft server the other day, and he was working on it. And this was, you know, just right around the time that we were out at Red Hat. And I, 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 as I was sitting there interviewing these people, I thought, these are the people, these are the decision makers that make it so my eight-year-old son can set up a Minecraft server for him and his sisters because he can run on enterprise-level technology. He's using the exact same commands, the exact same infrastructure, the same repos, all of the same technology that any commercial enterprise IT uh, infrastructure would be using. And he has it available to him completely for free. And these are the people that make it possible. So congratulations, Jim. Congratulations, Red Hat. Congratulations, IBM, for making an awesome decision. I think it's the right call. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Joel joins us from Georgia. Hey, Joel, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. How's it going, Noah? Hey, pretty good. I'm doing great. How are you? Hanging in there, and also, um, after the show, I'm going to send you a link to an article that's interesting about how, like, a lot of Silicon Valley CEOs are Indian, which okay. is very, very, which is, seems to be, which seems to be very, very um, interesting. Yeah. Um, but my main question... Well, I was just going to say, I, I was just going to say, it's, I'm not one of those people that thinks that anybody should get a position because of their, their heritage or anything like that. But I do definitely think, not, definitely not. but I, I do, I, I do think it's really awesome though, that, you know, as a, as a person of Indian descent, there, there are absolutely cultural, there, there are absolutely, yeah, there are absolutely cultural advantages to every culture, right? Every culture has advantages. And one of the things that I've noticed about my dad and his side of the family is, you know, people from India have a work ethic that just can't be rivaled, right? I mean, they just, they want to get to work and they just want to go for it, man. They just, they just, they scratch and they claw, they scratch and they claw until they succeed. And so when you see somebody like that enter into a, a position like CEO of IBM, I mean, my gosh, man, one of the oldest mm -hmm. technology companies, a hundred plus years old, and you have a guy who, you know, who has scratch and clawed undoubtedly as he's risen his way to the tip top 
I can't help but think, as a as a, as a fellow person who's of Indian descent, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, as a as a first gen American whose um, parents were who moved from India to here, that 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 is that that I agree with you totally. Um, now on to my question though, and with regards to this, um, I'm having some issues with my E Series ThinkPad from performance wise when it comes to gaming, and also I'm having some weird. I'm I'm trying to. It's weird because my I'm doing this uh, setup where I have my main S- NVMe SSD still be the Windows drive because mm-hmm. it's only Windows for certain applications, like I mentioned before. And I have a one terabyte at, uh, SATA SSD, and I'm trying to sp- and I'm trying to split it evenly so that I can have one with my main Ubuntu distro and my second and a secondary drive that I can switch out distros accordingly. And for some reason, whenever I go through the setup process. It always detects the NVMe first and mm-hmm. not the actual hard drive that it wants. And also I have to go manually partition, and then it goes into the whole mess of swap space mm. and also mm-hmm. versus swap file. And it's, I mean, I'm willing to do the work, but it seems a lot more dirty than it, not in a bad way dirty, but if you know what I mean. They do, yeah. In your hand. Yeah, I, I, I actually struggle with something similar. I reloaded my laptop, and what I what I originally wanted to do is I wanted two separate encrypted partitions that, um, that one for work and one for personal. And what I found was it was actually quite difficult um, to do that because, you know, obviously the bootloader has to have separate entries and then you have to get Lux to tie it in and there's all this stuff, right? And I actually found it simpler to set up to, to set up two different drives. And interestingly enough, and I'm guessing this is what you're struggling with, the for whatever reason, the 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 computers naturally gravitate towards that MVME drive and assume that's where you want the bootloader. It assumes that's where you want to install the operating system. I mean, everything is based on the assumption that that SSD is just that other SSD is just kind of there for external storage. And really, the primary drive is that MVME drive. And if that's not the way you want to set up the computer, then it just it becomes very difficult. And what I ended up doing was uh, downloaded Parted Magic and use that to set the drive up the way that I wanted the drive partitioned out. And then when I went into my Kubuntu installer, I just told it, hey, I want you to install to this partition, and then I manually installed the bootloader. I did want it on my MVME drive because it's all one drive for me, but uh, I that's where I installed my bootloader, and then that seemed to work. Um, interesting, or of note, I did the operating system... Let me think about this. I did, my, I did the operating system that I wanted to be my default operating system and what I wanted to boot into most often I did that last and so that that allowed the that allowed that operating system to be the one who installed the bootloader and all of that um, and so now I have uh, I've, I've got to, well it's actually it's they're both Kubuntu but um, it's just a dual boot of Kubuntu yeah understood and also is there any use for swap partitions anymore, yes. or do, is 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 it all swap files now? No, because uh, that's a great question. Well, here's the thing: when your computer runs out of RAM, the kernel has two choices: it either it either panics or it swaps out, right? And so I there people go back and forth all day long. I still put a swap partition in um, because. Uh, I like having reserved space on my disk that, hey, this space exists for no other purpose than to make absolutely sure that the, that the, that, that the machine doesn't crash. Um, and you can go back and forth all day long about the, the advantages and disadvantages, and there's plenty of good arguments on both sides. But me, uh, personally, I like having a separate partition. 
And and also this uh, part of magic is it is it with this solution would this sort of alleviate the issue where I'm having issues I can't suspend for a long period of time and having a black screen when I wake up the uh, wake up the laptop such that I have to reboot in order to boot back in. Hmm. No, that wouldn't. Fi I mean, partitioning wouldn't fix that. But you could. Uh, have you tried adding no mode set to the uh, to the kernel arguments um, for whichever for whichever uh, distro is causing the the issue with suspend for uh, the the black screen issue? Um, it, it's it's not necessarily a black screen issue. It just refuses to load after you, after you um, leave it to sleep for a certain long period of time. And I know Ubuntu has been having issue, has been having a is not necessarily the greatest issue when it comes to uh, suspend slash hibernate. Uh, if if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I, I I guess yeah. it's I tell you what I, it's been a long time since I've had suspend issues on a ThinkPad. If I'm being honest with you, I've 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 seen people with MacBooks that have issues with suspend issues. I, I know that um, the the Samsung laptops are pretty pretty notorious for having some suspend issues, but most of the ThinkPads just kind of work out of the box. That this, and, and oh, you know what? One well, other thing. One other thing, Joe. One other thing. I actually did struggle with something similar to this when I bought my X1. Go into your BIOS and look and see if there is a setting that that specifies what operating system you're installing. Because I had suspend issues. I had the machine was locking up. I had uh, trackpad issues. I mean, out the wazoo with my X1 car. I was scratching my head going, what in the blue heaven is going on? And I somebody had, had in the chat room had linked to this BIOS article for Lenovo, boot into the BIOS, and sure enough, there's a there's a setting, and it says, what operating system are you booting? And one of the choices is Linux. I changed it to Linux instantaneously. All my problems went away. Suspend issues went away. Trackpad issues went away. Wi-Fi issues went away. Everything worked flawlessly. Um, so I, I would well, encourage... I mean, maybe, maybe that might be because it's it's an enterprise-grade ThinkPad, and I'm using an mm. e Pad because I tried looking for that for that option in the BIOS and tried searching for it high and low and I couldn't find it. So okay, yeah, you you might be right. Maybe it is something that is that's just available with the with the uh, with the higher end models. But um, that that certainly did a number for me. I I'll keep an eye out. And um, there's something I, I I don't think I'm at liberty to talk about it this week yet. But there is something that is there's a new community resource that is going to become available um, to assist with exactly stuff like this. And so um, keep an eye out on next week's show uh and and i think we'll have some information for you there and of course the community every time i do a show and a question like this gets asked if if i don't have a perfect answer somebody will write in and have the perfect answer and of course i will present that for you next week thanks for the call again open phones this hour 855-450 no it's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com so the Raspberry Pi 4, well, the Raspberry Pi in general, has been a really interesting computing device that's been out for some time. People are doing things right and left with these things, and they it has become my go-to for, I want to try something, and I don't want to spend any money on a computer, so I throw it on a Pi. And what I'm finding is, more and more often, I don't move it off of the, the Pi and onto x86 hardware. I just let it continue to run on the Pi. I installed Volumio on a Raspberry Pi uh, like three years, two years ago, three years ago, something like that. And I thought for sure it'd be a nice little demo and eventually it would poop out and then I would go install it on some real, on a real server and I would use it ever since. And my gosh, if that thing hasn't been completely flawless since the day I installed it. And I have treated it like crap. I didn't give it a good power supply. It's running on a first generation Raspberry Pi with whatever SD card I happened to have laying around that came with whatever thing it, I'd happened to come with. I, there's no real planning or thought put into it at all. And it's just been flawless. And, and since then, we have started building these 
Volumeo boxes and actually selling them to businesses to use uh, for their in-house audio. So if you walk into a hotel or you walk into a lobby or whatever, there's a little music that plays in the, you know, in the overhead speakers, and they have added things like multi-room functionality, a bunch of really cool features and, and feature sets, and all of it runs on a Raspberry Pi. Well, I purchased a couple of Raspberry Pi 4 so I could start to get an idea, and man, the performance has just taken off. I mean, it really starts to feel like an actual desktop. And again, these things are 50, 60 bucks. And you, if you're if you're not pairing them with the Raspberry Pi Flirk case, then you're doing it wrong because it is the best case out there bar none. Well, I'm not the only one that has noticed the Raspberry Pi has some serious power behind it because the Raspberry Pi Foundation has announced that it's starting to work on implementing support for the open source Vulkan graphics API for the Raspberry Pi single board computers. And with the latest Raspberry Pi 4, OpenGLES 3.1 conformant, the company also wants to add support for their famous open source Vulkan driver, which provides high efficiency access to modern GPU and better performance uh, than the old OpenGL driver. This is fantastic. Now, it's going to be a long road. They're just getting started, so don't expect anything anytime soon. But this has very real big consequences down the road because... One of the things that I have tried time and time again to do with the Raspberry Pi and even the 4 didn't quite cut my didn't quite meet my standards for it. I am looking for a replacement for the Nvidia Shield. I like the Nvidia Shield. I think it's one of the be- I think it, it it is to this date that I've tried the best media player out there when you pair it with Kodi. But I don't like the fact, one, that it runs Android, two, that the, the update process is just insane. It, I, we, I, I, click, I inadvertently clicked on the update right before my kids were going to watch a movie, and the thing took like three and a half hours, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, it was just, it was insane. Um, and so, and they're expensive. They're about, they're about $200 or $300, and they have recently removed the Pro Series from their lineup, which means that they no longer support IR. That means that you can't use an external remote control. You have to use the stupid Bluetooth one that comes with it or pair a second one. Now, a, a, a company by the, uh, the name of Inoset makes a uh, IR receiver that you can plug in to the NVIDIA Shield, which is now what I'm doing so that I have one remote that I can control my TV and the NVIDIA Shield. But if I'm going to buy external hardware, it really starts to defeat the purpose of having uh, the the shield itself. And so I have tried every time a new generation of Raspberry Pi comes out, I have tried to run Kodi uh, or OpenELEC to be exact on the on the Pi and try to make a media center because I would eventually like to replace all of the NVIDIA shields in my house with Pi 4s running OpenELEC. And this kind of thing where there and so the problem with it has been. That it works fine for 1080p, uh, or excuse me, 720p DVDs most of the time. Uh, but when you try to open a 1080p Blu-ray, if it's 30-some gigs, it just chokes. Uh, it plays most of most of it okay, but then, you know, about every 15, 20 minutes, the movie stutters just a little bit and then resumes. Drives me nuts. So I haven't been able to actually swap those those things out. The other thing that the Raspberry Pi does that I really like is it has a standard power interface, whereas the power cable for the NVIDIA Shield um, is proprietary. And so if anything ever happens to that power brick and eventually it's going to burn out, uh, I can't replace it. The Pro version, which is the only version of the NVIDIA Shield that comes with an IR receiver, also has a spinning disk inside of it, which I'm not a big fan of. 
And so the advantage of the Pi is obviously it's all going to run off of an SD card and I can just swap that SD card. So there's many, many, many reasons why I would like to ultimately move to a Raspberry Pi for doing all of my media things. And this kind of progress where they're going to start actively working on graphics is going to open the Raspberry Pi up, I believe, to a whole new set of possibilities. I think it's going to smooth out um, things like running media centers on the Raspberry Pi. The other thing I think it's going to do is it's going to start to open the Raspberry Pi up for uh, for for entry-level gaming type things, right? So you will have the ability, I believe, at some point to be able to use the Raspberry Pi, you know, as a Steam client, as a, as a Steam thin streamer kind of a thing. And so you'll have your big, powerful gaming machine downstairs, and you can stream those games up to your Raspberry Pi. And, if, you know, these are the kinds of things that will become a possibility when graphics are considered rather than just, hey, this is a thing that can execute some code. We can teach some kids about this. I would be very interested to see, and I, I've talked to a number of people that are very heavy into the ARM world, and the answer I've got has remained pretty consistent. You know, we like ARM. It's a great it's a great uh, architecture. We think it offers some real advantages over x86 as far as heat dissipation and power consumption, those kinds of things. Um, but we don't think the Raspberry Pi is the best uh, answer for ARM. We think there are better answers out there. And certainly there are competitors to the Raspberry Pi 4, but I'm interested in light of the power, the sheer power that the Raspberry Pi 4 has, the stability that really we arrived at with the Raspberry Pi 3, because both the 2 and the 1 had some issues where if you tried to plug a keyboard in or a mouse in and it, there was that sudden power surge, the, the Pi would reboot. Um, people had suggested to me that that was a power supply issue. I've tried every power supply under the sun and uh, even the ones that they recommend and still, depending on what keyboard or mouse you're using, they reboot. Uh, the three did not suffer that f from that problem. I've not seen the four suffer from that problem. So I th we are making really big strides. And the nice thing about the Raspberry Pi is it is accessible to everybody. So if you go to HassIO, if you go to look at Home, you're going to set up Home Assistant and you go to HassIO, what you're going to find is that their suggested way of installing HassIO is on a Raspberry Pi. If you go to the Volumio site, if you look, their suggested way of installing Volumio is on the Raspberry Pi. And so every time you have these new projects that are coming out, NextCloud, one of the ways that a lot of people run NextCloud is on a Raspberry Pi. And so because it's accessible for everybody and because developers can test on it and, and deploy on it, you essentially have a blank slate for an appliance and anybody can make that appliance into anything that they want. And I think that's a very powerful thing for the community to leverage. So this just adds on top of that. And I'm excited to see where this goes. Of course, you want more information. Um, not a lot of information is out. We got this from 9to5Linux, but we'll have it linked in the show notes. Again, you can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check out the show notes. Again, it's open phones this hour. If you'd like to join the program, you can give us a call, 855-450-NOAA. It's one 855 the email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your feedback that way. The There is a new pseudo vulnerability out. Now, this vulnerability affects pseudo versions prior to version 1.8.26 and from 1.7.1 to 1.8.25 uh, P1. But it only if the PW feedback option was set in Etsy sudoers uh, by the system administrator. Now, this what this flaw 
does is it allows users to trigger a stack-based buffer overflow in the privileged pseudo process. And so a stack-based buffer overflow vulnerability in pseudo uh, it, uh, allows, uh, allows an underprivileged user to take advantage of a flaw to obtain full root privileges. It would appear that the PW feedback option is enabled by default in elementary OS Linux Mint um, but is not enabled by default in upstream Debian uh, uh, stretch systems. Um, or excuse me, is not enabled by default in upstream. Now, Debian GNU, Debian 9 stretch systems are also affected, and users are urged to update their installations as soon as possible to sudo 1.8.19p1-2. Uh, patches should be available shortly for other distributions. So make sure to update as soon as possible. And of course, if you listen to the show, I would tell you, you should be updating at least every week anyway, uh, vulnerability or no vulnerability. Um, two bit in the chat room says that there was a pseudo update to his Manjaro box. So of course, all of the arch people are going to be jumping up and down telling us how great their up-to-date systems are. But no, in all seriousness though, these are the kind of things that we have to pay attention to and the things that you have to stay on top of. Um, you know, so, update. What can I say? There's not really much more to that. As far as security vulnerabilities go, if you thought Linux was the only one that was affected this week, you're wrong because TeamViewer has been caught storing usernames and passwords encrypted with AES 128 CBC with a key. And if you want to see well, all all the key stuff, go to podcast.snoahshow.com because I'm not going to try and read this. But inside of the Windows registry, if the password is reused anywhere, privilege privilege escalation is possible. And if you do not have RDP rights to the machine, but TeamViewer is installed, you can use TeamViewer to remote in. TeamViewer also lets you copy data or schedule tasks to run through their service, which runs as NT authority. So low privileged users can immediately go to a system with a .bat file. And uh, I, we have the entire article linked. This guy does a incredible breakdown of exactly what this vulnerability is and how it works and how it functions. But the important part to, to keep in mind is when you are using a piece of software like TeamViewer, what you have to understand is when TeamViewer tells you that it's a very secure piece of software, really, you're taking TeamViewer's word for it because nobody has seen the source for TeamViewer other than the people who wrote it, and they're not at liberty and or likely to disclose what's in the source code. When you use a piece of software like X2Go, for example, it has been vetted time and time again by how many eyes. And so from a security perspective, I just don't really put a lot of faith in things like TeamViewers. It also makes me nervous that, remember, this is this this vulnerability was diagnosed and essentially troubleshot as a Windows thing. But keep in mind, when you install TeamViewer on a Linux system, it runs as root. And, you know, what is it doing in the background? And what kind of access does TeamViewer and or people that are using TeamViewer have to your system? Because if they find a vulnerability or an exploit in TeamViewer, well, guess what? Now that thing is running as root on your system and you've just given an attacker access to it. The other thing, and you know, internet of service is what it is at the same time. The fact that there is a brokerage server that when your team viewer client fires up or the team viewer server, part of it fires up, it calls back into team viewer and says, here I am. And I'm ready to accept connections from anybody. Uh, keep in mind that's all being handled on TeamViewer sites. You have absolutely no control over the stuff that you're putting on your system. And I get that TeamViewer is a really easy and simple way to get 
uh, remote access to a system and get things set up for people. And I also understand and recognize that Simple Help, which I've recommended numerous times on this program, is not an open source piece of software, also runs as root or privileged user when installed. But at least the service isn't running in the background when I'm not using it, number one. Number two, at least it's self-hosted. So Simple Help will work if I have it just on a segregated LAN and I have nothing else running on that LAN. It's not even connected to the Internet. I'll still be able to use Simple Help. With TeamViewer, unless it's actively going through the Internet, you're not going to be able to get a remote connection. So I would be pretty cautious about using TeamViewer. I have taken it off most of my systems long before this, not because of this, just because every time I turn around, I see that TeamViewer running his root in the background and it just sits there and it just aggravates the heck out of me. So I, you know, take it, take this for what it's worth. If you're, if, if it's something that you're concerned about, remove TeamViewer altogether. I believe that the biggest flaw is in TeamViewer 7, which is a little long in the tooth at this point. But again, you can read the entire uh, security article and how he went about exploiting TeamViewer and gaining access to systems as an underprivileged user. Uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. A new Intel vulnerability is out. This vulnerability is called the cache out. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we have covered Intel vulnerabilities and speculative execution um, out the wazoo over the past you know, few, uh, few months here on the Ask Noah show. But there is a new speculative execution attack out that's capable of leaking data from Intel CPUs across many security boundaries. We show that despite Intel's attempt to address previous generations of speculative execution attacks, CPUs are still vulnerable, allowing attackers to exploit these vulnerabilities and leak sensitive data. Now, you know, before anybody totally freaks out, keep in mind, most of these speculative attacks require some sort of access to the system. So this is not something that um, people are executing from afar. Uh, it requires a certain level of access to the system to begin with. It's still something that we want to be aware of. And it's also something that as Ryzen continues to become more and more stable and more and more accepted and provides better and better performance at a lower price point than Intel, I might add, it's something that we should all consider. My latest workstation that I built in my basement that I'm now using uh, on my day-to-day uh, on my day-to-day operation, uh, I did with Ryzen. And so far, I have to say that if you're looking for a computing system that works flawlessly out of the box with Linux, Ryzen is definitely the way to go. I had now that is, to, to be fair, this is more of a comparison of NVIDIA to 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 the, the Ryzen graphics rather than um, or AMD graphics rather than the, the Intel versus Ryzen. But I had a weird issue in where. My KDE desktop would completely lock up to the point that none of the bottom bar windows would work. I couldn't minimize. I couldn't maximize. I couldn't click on anything. It just wouldn't work. And the only way to fix that problem, uh, not even logging out, not even bouncing the, the desktop DE would bring it back, I had to completely reboot the computer. And since switching over to Ryzen, I have not had that problem a single time. And so every time I see another Intel vulnerability pop up, I have to ask myself, are, you know, is this really the direction I want to go? Or should we maybe just all start considering Ryzen as a, as, as a more production-ready system? Because, I, I, you know, Ryan got me started on it, but uh, 
I have to admit, it is a far smoother experience. And remember, these are the kind of things that matter when you have a company that is developing their drivers out in the open, is giving that information to the community and not relying on some company. Oop, there goes my computer. And not relying on some company to do it for you. And so uh, keep in mind, another Intel vulnerability out. If, if speculative execution is something that is of concern to you, then check out uh, the show notes again, show for more information. Again, 855-450-NOAA. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your phone calls. We'll take your emails. Uh, and we'd love to have you add your voice to the conversation. Make your voice heard. South Korea is switching to Linux. Now, obviously, this is hot on the heels of the uh, the switch from China, who has announced that they have a five-year plan to switch entirely over to Linux. South Korea joins them. They are already using a open source demonstration such as the Ministry of Defense and Friendship uh, from the end. Now, this is translated from uh, from Korean, I assume. But from the end of this, from the end of year, the computer operating system OS used by the central government, local governments, and public institutions is expected to be replaced by uh, by an open OS developed by Korean companies. In the existing Microsoft Windows, so in other words, they're replacing Microsoft Windows with 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 Linux. Uh, every five years, the Windows technical support has ended, leaving the need to switch to a higher version. In other words, they're not very happy that Microsoft has ended support for Windows Seven, and if they're going to go to something else, it's not going to be Microsoft related. They are going to switch over to a to a uh, to a Linux distro. Open OS, OpenOS such as CloudOS, Harmonica OS, and Tmax OS are based on Linux. And unlike Microsoft Windows, the entire source program for, for the, uh, is open to the public, so anyone can use the PC operating system freely. What's interesting about this and what's of note of this is this comes again, like I say, hot on the heels of China making a very similar announcement. And a lot of people were... Uh, questioning and or concerned when Munich reversed their decision when they went to Linux and then reversed their decision and decided that they, it wasn't working out for them and they were going to go back to Microsoft Windows. And a lot of people speculated that, well, I guess what we know from what we can take away from that story is that Linux was not really ready for an entire country to switch. It really only worked with uh, it really only worked with with Windows. And so they, they had no choice. And what I would tell you is in light of all of these other countries making very similar decisions, I would tell you that I think maybe Munich just jumped the gun or maybe they just weren't patient enough. The, the, the reality is this, all of these company, all of these countries who have been relying on Microsoft for years have probably had concerns for a long time about the security of using a foreign nation's operating system in which they don't have access to the source code. And the problem has been there really hasn't been another alternative for a long time. And as we in the open source community have continued to build out infrastructure and continue to build tools and resources that work inside of businesses and people like myself have run entire companies based on the premise that Linux offers a better experience to the end user, it only, it was it's it's merely a matter of time before other Companies start to make those switches and other countries start to make those switches, particularly given that most of the modern day utilities that we use today are web based. If you have a new app, if you're developing a new app, if you're developing a new infrastructure, chances are today 
you're doing that inside of a web browser. You're not doing that in a uh, in a, in a native application unless it's very very spec- specific. And if it is specific, then obviously um, you're you're targeting a you know a particular operating system or platform, and the Korean government has the ability to pay to have somebody develop that tool for them. And so I think this is I think this it's another check in the box of another country that that isn't going to follow in the heels of Microsoft and Kubuntu uh, made and the KDE team made a very similar plea to people that said, hey, if you're concerned about Windows 7 going EOL and you're looking to move to something else, why don't you check out uh, one of the KDE desktop environments? Because all of these uh, all of these things are going to uh, offer a solution and an upgrade path from Windows 7. That's not Windows 10, I might add. That doesn't have the, hey, you're going to have to wait two or three hours for, uh, you're not going to have to wait two or three hours for an update to complete. You're not going to have to wait for activation from Microsoft and and all of the telemetrics that go out of Windows 10. Um, There is another option out there. And so, again, we'll see if it actually works out for them. Time will tell. But I think The more countries that do this, the more pressure there's going to be on companies and software services to provide their services or software to people who are using the Linux operating system. And so this is just one more check in the box. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. We'll take your your calls and your feedback that way. Uh, At the end of the show, we try to get to some feedback. Uh, uh, Alexi writes in and says, hello, Noah, I'm interested in your opinion about password manager for IT teams. I'm looking for an on-premise password manager, optionally isolated from the internet or network that's able to store IT infrastructure passwords, router switches, VM hosts, etc. Share passwords among team members and groups. Be careful in a disaster recovery situation to be accessible from the local machine. So far, I've discovered the following projects. Bitwarden, he says, Hypervault, Keeper, Passbolt, Passwork, and Pasono, uh, which I'd not heard of Pasono before. Um, and so he asks which one of those I would recommend. So I, I guess let's start with this. Bitwarden, if that's something that you're playing with or considering, is a fantastic option. A fantastic option because it's open source. There are plugins available for web browsers, which makes it very easy for users to use to log in and, uh, and, and automatically fill in forms and password fields. I'll tell you what we do at AltaSpeed. We have a KeePass file, and we're using KeePass XC. Now, the nice thing about KeePass XC as opposed to regular KeePass is it provides the option to generate passphrases. And if you're not familiar with a pass, what a passphrase is, a passphrase is a uh, essentially there is a dictionary of English-based like words, um, and it uses a a, a a a security model called dice words, and so you. The, the old way of doing it is you would roll a set of dice and it would generate a number and you go through the diceware catalog and find which word corresponds to that particular number and that becomes the first word in your passphrase. You do it again and you get a second pa- word in your passphrase. Do it again, third word in your passphrase, so on and so forth until you have a very high entropy password um, that is virtually uncrackable, at least um, even by state powers, really. I mean, if you have a, uh, you know, a nine to 12 word passphrase, nobody knows what order those uh, those words are in, and so the entropy is very, very high, and it becomes very difficult for computers to crack, yet it's very easy 
for people to remember. Obviously, in a perfect world, we would just generate 26 random characters uh, through the entire key space because that's going to be the most difficult thing to brute force. Uh, in apps, the problem with that is it makes it almost impossible to remember. And so what I like about KeePass is it gives you the option. If you're always going to use the password manager, obviously it doesn't matter if it's memorable or not. But KeePass XC allows you to generate a very long password and use that. And it allows you to generate a passphrase that you can share with a couple of people and people can start to kind of remember if they're going to type it frequently or they need to use it frequently. Another feature I like about KeePass XC that works particularly well for us is the folder hierarchy. So inside of KeePassXC, you can create uh, folders to group servers or networks, or we have clients, uh, and, and you, it, it provides a tremendous amount of organization. And the last thing that I particularly like about KeePassXC is it allows me to have uh, conflict resolution. So we store our uh, KeePass file on a, uh, on a, on a NAS, and so there are multiple people that may access that at any one time. And the, one of the issues with that is if something were to happen uh, and, and two people were to access it at the same time and maybe save two different changes, what would happen? Well, KeePassXC has conflict resolution, so it will save two copies of the file. One will be the, the, the KeePass database, which is the last one that was saved. The second one will be a conflict file so that if something, if there was data that was needed from that second one, you have the opportunity of going back and recovering that data. So I found that to be a fantastic local tool. The other thing is if you're ever looking, if you're ever working in a high security environment, remember uh, you want to be using some sort of amnesiac operating system like Tails and KeePass XC comes pre-installed on Tails. And so you can just plug a flash drive in with a KeePass XC database on it and uh, and open it up on on tails and now that machine is completely isolated from the internet and again i don't know what your environment is if you're sharing it with people i would assume that even if it's devoid of the internet it's probably not devoid of uh of local uh, network access and so one of those things those would be my two choices bitwarden or keypass xc i've played with a couple of the other ones you recommended um, but those by far are my two favorites they also happen to be open source and so i trust the security quite a bit better uh uh, um, Lucas writes in and says, hello, Noah, we're, we were talking a few episodes ago about Windows virtualization. You said that you use Remina, but didn't say what the underlying Linux host is or what the graphical interface is. Do users have to log into GNOME or KDE first and then launch Remina to use Windows? I'm wondering if it would be possible to run Remina without a window manager full screen to make Linux host somehow transparent to the Windows users. Thanks for all the hard work you do. Regards. Um, so there's two ways that we go about doing this. Yes, if, okay, if it's a client that I am that that I have a personal relationship, they're not just an Ultisb client. And the truth is, if you're a business owner, then you know this to be true. The way that you get jobs is it's based on who you know. And if it's somebody there that I know has a passion for Linux and, and really cares about it and wants the best Linux experience possible, then yes, we typically buy Dell Optiplex workstations and we and we install Kubuntu on them. And um and then run Remina and that's how the user authenticates into their their Windows box when they need it. If, however, it's a client that, hey, we are a XYZ firm and we just need Windows computers and you can do whatever the heck you want in the back end, but I just want my Windows desktop presented. What we actually do is we use a uh, software called ThinLinks, which comes pre-installed on the Raspberry Pi of all things, but they also offer uh, versions that you can install on x86 hardware, and it turns any workstation into a thin client that will automatically connect to a Windows RDP session, which 
is exactly what you're talking about, making it transparent to the user. So they have no idea that they are on Linux. They don't care that they're on Linux. What they know is that they power this machine on and when their Windows desktop appears. And that's the way that they prefer to use it. And if they ever you know, disconnect or restart the computer or it crashes, it just reconnects to that VM. That maintains all of the advantages of having um, not, Windows not installed on the metal so we can take advantages of snapshotting and, and, uh, and image-based disks and all those kinds of things, but provides a transparent uh, Windows desktop to the end user. So hopefully that helps you. Hey, did you know the Ask Noah Show is available at podcast.asknoahshow.com? That's where all the show notes are. So all the stuff we don't get to, and there is a ton, you can get it there on the site. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. See you next week. Mm-hmm.